0: God really cares about what you wear. My first year of college, I went to a, uh, a very Bible college in Wisconsin, and it had a pretty strict code of dress, meaning it could be 10 degrees outside, and the gals still had to wear dresses. And I couldn't understand. I was like, what? Like, give them some leggings. Let them put some sweatpants. Help them out. It's cold out here. And then I remember uh, hearing about culottes, and I was like, what? What are culottes? <laughs> and then I saw them and I fell in love with them. Those are amazing. Not really. Uh, I, I don't really care about what you're wearing. I'm wearing flannel right now, but what you wear is important. I'm not talking about these shirts. I'm talking about what the Bible means, where we've been in Ephesians 4, that we put off and put on, that we take off garments. We put on other garments. We take off the old shirt. From the old life, and we put on the new shirt that's been given to us from Jesus, and we follow him and walk in line with him. And as we saw last week, what Paul is describing in this language of put off and put on that he says here, and he also talks about in Colossians and also Romans, what he's saying and describing is a lifestyle of repentance, a lifestyle of regularly turning. Wayne Grudem defines repentance this in his systematic theology. He says repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. And we saw the renewing of our minds. We saw the different desires and loves that need to be changed. And and so what he's painting is an all-of-life repentance, that 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 we turn regularly from idols, anything that we're worshiping that's not God, that's not Jesus, that, that has become more important to us, and we turn from that and turn to Jesus, and we turn from lies. We turn to the truth found in Jesus, and we turn from our sinful actions and sinful words to to godly, loving words and actions. This means that God cares about our desires, our loves, and he cares about our thinking and our beliefs, and he cares about our actions. But so often, we emphasize or only highlight one of the three, and God is saying, I'm after all of you. He, he, as a ferocious lover, doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. He wants your heart and your desires and your thoughts and your belief and your actions in this relationship with him. And that's what the Bible does. It encompasses those three when it talks about the heart. That it's not just our affections, It is our affections and our loves and our thinking and our choices. So our our minds need to be renewed by the spirit of truth. And our loves need to be reordered where God is the greatest. And our actions need to match up with our identity. And so we get this morning to Paul specifically applying this to our words and actions. Because of God's love for you and because what he's done for you in Christ Put off this and put on, because this is who you are. You are new in Christ. You are saved in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ. You are forgiven in Christ. So live out this new identity. And in these specific words and actions, what he's given us is not a standard of dress, but really a code of conduct of how are we going to uh, uh, conduct ourselves with one another? How are we going to relate to one another? How are we going to respond to one another? What does this look like as life together? How do we grow and flourish together? So Ephesians 4, these are just the bullet points of application. So we're just going to walk through it. Okay, so see with me. Ephesians 4, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, grab one around you. If you don't have one at all, take it with you home. I want you to see this if you can. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, so because of this, put away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Now, think about a community. What does lying do? Well, lying erodes trust, erodes relationships, it deforms relationships. But honesty, honesty is foundation for life together. Honesty is where there's mutual trust. And you guys get this, right? Like when something uh, gets exposed or something blows up in your relationship or in your marriage or something you've been hiding gets exposed or you confess something, And then what does it take? It takes time to rebuild trust. Because what? Lies and deceit and manipulation erode that trust, erode that relationship. So he says, put that away. Put that off and put on speaking the truth. And then he gives a reason why. Why? Well, he could say, because this is God's nature. God is true. There's no deceit in him. So tell the truth like God tells the truth. Or he could say, Jesus said, I'm the way, the life, and the truth. So speak the truth, because Jesus is the truth, but he says, no, no, here he connects it to us. We are members together. That's why we speak the truth to one another. We are members of one another. He connects this to our union with one another through Jesus, that we're one body comprised of many parts. We're intimately connected. Like, what if on Friday at the campfire that I was at, what if my eye lied to my feet and told my feet, it's okay to put your feet in the fire? Burned. That's what's going to happen, right? Well, What if you lie to another member of the body? What if you deceive? What if you manipulate? What if you hide? What happens? It deforms our relationships, erodes trust, it harms others, it breaks us apart lies will destroy us so we put them off put off telling lies and we speak the truth where truth does the complete opposite where lies fight and destroy and erode unity truth strengthens it now if you're like well that's not me i don't i don't tell lies well Anytime it's getting applied to us, right? We we may have a aversion, an objection, like "No, not me," right? Well, get beyond just the outright telling of lies, right? If someone asks you a question and you write outright like, tell them a lie, okay. Beyond that, what else? What if they ask you a question and you give them a half truth? What if you soften it? What if you take the edge off? What if you give a piece of it, not the whole, because you don't want this to be found out? What if you're hiding something from your spouse? What if you're dishonest about what's really going inside of you that someone asks you, cares about, he has moved towards you in love and asking about it, and you lie to them what's really going on? You don't keep that hidden. You don't keep that to yourself. You don't be known. Telling lies also includes deceiving and manipulation. And so in all of this, we're to turn away from it, take it off, confess it, and speak the truth. I As a body, as a people, we're open and honest and true speaking because we're members of one another. And then he says, be angry and do not sin, verse 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Now he's quoting Psalm 4-4 here, which speaks of righteous anger. Okay, do you know, you know what ra- righteous anger is? Anger is essentially I'm against that. And righteous anger is, is I'm against what God's against. My anger lines up with God's anger. So what is God's anger? What is God against? And I'm against that. And what is that particularly? Sin. Sin that's eating people away from the inside like cancer. And God hates it. And we are to hate it as well. To have righteous anger. We should feel this anger. I want to be against people destroying their lives and destroying their relationships. And that's what sin does. Evil prevails when we are indifferent to injustice. We should hate sin like God's sin. And this is seen really in David. This is how David spoke with it. David's anger lined up with God's. He says in Psalm 119, 53, hot indignation seizes me because the wicked who forsake your law. So this is righteous anger, right? But... You can have righteous anger, but then express it righteously or unrighteously. That's that's a little bit what Paul's getting at with be angry and do not sin, right? Be angry, have that righteous anger, but do not sin. Do not express it unrighteously. And then there's unrighteous anger, and that's verse 31. Just straight unrighteous anger. This anger is self-defensive and out of control and it leads to jealousy and murder and envy and many others. And so to keep our anger righteous, Paul gives us these three reminders. He says the first is do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. If we have righteous anger, we are to express it righteously, not unrighteously. Now what does this look like? Well, If you go back to Paul writing to the Ephesians and to this body, you can imagine with me a fellow believer in the body beginning to make compromises with the pagan idolatry that they came out of and another believer caring about that person and seeing the destructive path before them, seeing where they're compromising, seeing their, their heart turning kind of like Solomon's to the gods of his wives instead of uh, staying faithful to God and pulling them, and you care about them, and you go after them, and you want to pursue them, and, and you hate that they're going after destruction. But we must express that anger Righteously. Anger is a powerful t- tool. It's, a, it's a, a powerful thing that when wielded wisely, it actually propels us to move towards others with constructive mercy. That we see them going down this path. We see them making these choices. We see this sinful direction they're going. And it doesn't mean anger and resentment and hatred that they're walking away, but uh, hatred for that sin that's pulling them away from Jesus. And we want to move towards him and come alongside them and say, hey, 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 let's together fight this sin in you and move towards Jesus together. That's constructive mercy. That I see this, I want to express this anger righteously, what? To serve, to build up, to help the body, not tear it apart. So be angry and do not sin. Then he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This is a quote again. This is from Deuteronomy 24, 15, where uh, uh, the time limit set for paying the, the, the workers' wages. So if you hired a couple of people to work for you during that day, at sunset, you're supposed to pay them. That's the deadline. That's what it said. Why? Well, so you pay people, you'll take advantage of people. It's good. Well, then Paul picks this up and applies this to anger. He says there should be some limit. There should be some limit that we don't nurse anger forever. There's a danger in allowing anger to continue beyond a reasonable limit. Paul is saying, don't let it fester. Resolve it quickly. Even righteous anger can lead to problems like bitterness. So the the time to be angry is short. Short. Even in the the present, even in the, the verb tense of this word, do not be angry, is present imperative, which means... That this anger should not be an ongoing characteristic of our lives, but rather felt and expressed on certain occasions. He's not saying being an irritable, angry, grumbly person uh, and, and act like you're joyful in the Lord. No, he's saying there's times to be angry, but even when you are, even when there's righteous anger, That you should work to resolve that quickly and not nurse it and nurse it and nurse it and let it grow up like a baby into a toddler and and let that resentment stay with you like a kid all the time. No, seek forgiveness and reconciliation quickly. And he goes on uh, another way to to push it and he says, don't give the devil an opportunity. Now that's in the CSV, and I think the ESV translated opportunity I think the best translation is place. It's where you'll see foothold, where you give the devil a place. So another danger of ongoing anger is the devil will exploit it for his purposes. By nursing anger, we can give a place to the devil, a foothold, where the enemy loves lies loves anger fuels on them and sees your anger and energizes on it and then wants to energize it and like yeah 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 get more angry hold on to that bitterness hold on to those resentments be more angry yes yes why because the enemy wants anger to burn like a wildfire through our congregation scarring everyone Satan would love to use your anger as an opportunity to make you violent and divisive. So seek forgiveness and reconciliation quickly. Quickly. Not be be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Shut the door on him by forgiving. Shut the door on him. But not nursing anger and turning into resentment and bitterness, shut the door on him. And don't give him a place to energize your anger and lies. And then he turns to another person. Verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he has to do honest work with his own hands so they have something to share with anyone in need. Rather than taking, work hard and give. Do you see that? Not even work hard and provide for yourself, but work hard and provide yourself so that you can also give and share and take care of everyone. You, you put off taking for yourself and you put on, I'm going to work hard and give to others. I'm going to take care. This, this isn't like a family. This is family. And so we are one another's safety nets. When we lose jobs, when things blow up, when things are terrible, that we are going to care for one another. Why? Because we're not takers we're givers. Why? Because what we've been given so generously in Christ, all the spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, are ours in Christ. You, gotta have, you have a generous Father, so we work hard and are generous with one another. That's what we put on. Calvin said it this way, John, sorry, not Hobbes. Calvin said, no one may live to himself alone and neglect others. All must devote themselves to supplying others' necessities. Yeah, we're going to pitch in. We're going to take care. We're a family. Then he goes to foul language. Verse 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Your translation may say filthy. It's Put off filthy, foul language. Now, if you have filthy, you probably go to something very current in in our understanding of what are bad, like filthy words, right? That's what you're thinking. That's not what's happening. Foul language here is used in the Gospels for rotten fruit that needs to be thrown away and rotten fish that needs to be tossed out. Put off this rotten language. Uh, one of my sons, uh, he's not here this morning, one of my sons has an aversion to uh, a certain textured green vegetables, like all of them, but he just doesn't like the texture, and, and he's a trooper, this dude, he's a trooper, like, he'll try, right, We're like, hey, buddy, can you try, because you, you can't eat cucumbers as the only vegetable for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you have to eat something else than that, and so we get him to try broccoli or something, put it in his mouth, and he's a trooper, so he wants to do it, right, and so he's smiling with his face, but he puts on his tongue, and he's smiling. He's like, uh, but he's gagging down here. He's like, but gagging, right? He's like, uh, I'm like, I feel so bad. I'm like, okay, spit it out, spit it out. What Paul's saying is that's actually what we should build up A gag reflex to foul language that we used to speak that now it tastes rotten in our mouths when it comes up The demeaning and the gossip and the belittling and the biting sarcasm no longer tastes good. It repulses us. And so we put that off and put on godly loving words. That build up. That's what's tasty. What's tasty to you and what's tasty to those that hear you are words that honor and build up and encourage and wisely guide others. In line with this, the the early church father, Augustine, he hung a sign up in his dining room that said, no, it didn't say that. Grace. (laughs) Grace. The early church father. (laughs) He's a really big Julia Roberts fan. Uh, I needed some levity, so I threw it in there. That wasn't Grace's fault, that's my fault. Whoever speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. You sense that? Like, hey, these are just our rules, this is our code of conduct. You can't eat at my table and just be talking badly about someone. Give me gossiping, slander. Like, this is not how we're going to operate. Then he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now this is again echoing the Old Testament. This is 60, Isaiah 63.10, where the prophet is recalling the Exodus, Exodus event where God redeemed his people out of love, pulled them out of slavery, out of Egypt, pulled them to himself, and has taken them to himself to be his people in his place where he's going to rule and care for them. And they get to the desert, and what do they do? They rebel. And Isaiah 63 says, and grieve his Holy Spirit. We face the same danger. We've been redeemed and loved by God, but we run the risk of rebelling against God in our words and actions, of grieving the Spirit of God who is with us. If you know God, then you know father son and spirit which means you know the spirit is a person a person who grieves over sin and paul is using this as another motivation to put this trash off and put on a new life the holy spirit is a person with you let that motivate you to not grieve him because you are an intimate relationship with him just like I don't want to grieve my, uh, uh, my spouse with my words and actions. I don't want to grieve the Lord with my words and actions. Why? Because I stand before the Father, and he's pleased with me because I'm clothed in Jesus. And because that is my life, because that is my identity, I want to please him in my words and actions. I want to live out this identity that... Loves and serves and blesses, not takes and tear downs and manipulates and lies. We love God. We don't want to grieve <laughs> his heart. And then it culminates, crescendos in these last two verses. Let all, verse 31, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Put this off and put this off. The bitterness to put off. What he's speaking of there is hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness that harbors resentments about the past. Do you hear me? Do you know what I'm talking about? those wounds from your past that you're still nursing the anger on and you still have the bitterness towards that person or that event or that group or that whole family or that whole church. That you have a hard heart that harbors resentment about the past. It's bitterness. And then back to the, the, the wrath and anger, he's talking about this unrighteous anger. And he gets more particular when you see what the shouting and what is the shouting. It's not just, "Hey, man, I got to get your attention." It's screaming and yelling in the midst of a quarrel. That's what he's talking about. That this anger is just lively, and we're fighting with another and demeaning one another and yelling at one another, slandering. Put away slander. That's any defamatory language about another, tearing someone's good reputation down. And then he says, along with all malice. And if you're like, I don't know if there's any bitterness. I don't know. This is a junk drawer term to say everything. Malice Malice means all intent and desire to do evil. He's saying put it all off. All intent to do evil, all desire in you to do evil, put it off. This is foundational for life together as believers, that it's kindness rather than abusive talk or rudeness. It's compassion, which literally means tender-hearted. Do you see the juxtaposition? Be tender-hearted rather than hard-hearted harboring resentments. Be tender-hearted, which would be quick to forgive and love and bless forgiving rather than bitter and resentful, as God forgave you in Christ. In Christ means the act of God's redemption where Jesus paid for your sins to forgive you on the cross, that he absorbed the debt that we owed, that he paid the penalty that we deserved to get. He took it upon himself, diverted the wrath from us, and gave us forgiveness and life with the Father. So then, how will we live? We will forgive one another. Do you hear me? Rather being discipled by the world, this idolatrous age, CNN, and the news cycle that's always people yelling at each other, mad about something, raging about something, quarreling about something. We're not going to be discipled by that. We're going to be discipled by our Father who has not treated us that way. So how can I be a friend committed to resolving conflict in this body when I've been sinned against. We forgive. That's what we do. We can't pick up <laughs> the world's language or really flow and say, you're toxic because this one thing you did to me, I'm cutting you out of my life. What if Jesus did that to you? You wouldn't have been born. He knew you are going to be toxic. He wouldn't have come for you he would have just give you what you deserved punishment he would have cut you off immediately why because we're toxic and sinful and broken and selfish and narcissistic and we need jesus to save us renew us and uncurl us from ourselves to turn to jesus and make him the center of everything of our desires and our thoughts and all of our actions We forgive. We've got to forgive. We've got to forgive. To forgive is not to enable, not to rescue. It's not to negate the sin. To forgive is not to deny the pain or to forget. To forgive is not to condone that action. To forgive is not to cease the pursuit of justice. There's times where you forgive and also you call the cops. And to forgive doesn't always mean that relationship will be repaired. You can forgive, but reconciliation may not happen because of the other person. But you're going to move towards it. Why? Because Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 whether you've been offended or you've offended someone else, if you're a Christian, the weight is on you to move towards the other party because that's what Jesus has done to you. To seek forgiveness quickly, to seek reconciliation quickly, not nurse anger and let it turn into harboring resentment. Forgiveness is this. It's the decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when he or she injured you. It's deciding to live with the painful consequences of another person's sin. We absorb the pain of their sin and release them from their debt against us. And it means we joyfully resolve to never throw it in their face again. Forgiveness resolves to not pursue revenge, but entrust justice with the Lord. Forgiveness means you're pursuing that person's good, not evil. That's how we've been forgiven by Jesus. So that's how we to forgive. Now, we say things like hurt people hurt people, and I think we get that sentiment. But what's also true is that forgiven people forgive people. that in light of what you've been forgiven of by Jesus, the $10 trillion debt against the Lord Almighty, that then we can forgive the $10 debts between us and the $100 and even the long-term ones that have wounded us so far that it's impacted all of our lives. Because of the power of Christ, we can forgive even the worst. Even when you don't feel it, we forgive. I think some of us wait and wait and wait till our feelings lead us to then make the decision to forgive. And that's probably your objection. You're like, no, you need to forgive, but maybe your objection is, I don't feel it. I'm not going to give it. I'm not granted until I feel it. Tim Keller says this in response. He says, forgiveness is granted often a good while before it is felt, not felt before it is granted. It is a promise to not exact the price of sin from the person who hurts you. It is likely you have always thought, well, I have to feel it before I grant it. I have to start feeling less angry before I start to not hold them liable. If you wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. You'll be in an anger prison. That you... Like so many things in the Christian life, we don't negate our heart and our affections in light of obedience. But when we're called to obey, we obey even when we don't feel like it. And we pray for our affections to catch up to obedience. And that's the grace that God does. He's saying grant this and typically you'll feel it afterwards. Instead of waiting and trying to conjure up or, or muster up some feeling of forgiveness towards the other person. Actually grant it because you've been granted. And then trust and pray that the Lord will help you feel that forgiveness towards them. Maybe maybe put off cursing them to God and start praying for them. Keller, again, he writes this. It's hard to stay angry at someone if you're praying for them. It's also hard to stay angry unless you feel superior. And it's hard to feel superior if you're praying for them. Since in prayer, you approach God as a forgiven sinner. I don't look down, demean, or withhold forgiveness from this person with wherever they're at. But I forgive them. Why? Because when I'm praying for them and I connect with God, you know what I see? I see my epic need for God's grace. And I receive that grace for me. And then I can approach and handle and deal with people like you and me with grace and mercy and forgiveness. So being very practical, very specific, what do you need to change? What do you need to put off? What garment do you need to remove this morning and put on? Because I believe this is a lifestyle of repentance, I assume that there's many of us that need to take some stuff off this morning, that need to put away and put on the garment that Jesus has given us. Some of us need to put off lies and put on speaking the truth. You put off unrighteous anger and put on righteous anger. To put off stealing and put on working hard and giving. Put off foul words and put on encouraging, loving, building words. Put off bitterness and put on forgiveness. Put off slander and rage and put on kindness. Put off malice and put on compassion. This is how we'll grow and flourish together. This is the code of conduct for the people of God. I'm going to ask him to serve us this morning. Father, I pray that you would work by your spirit to convict in your kindness, lead us to, to take off these sinful words and actions and put on love, And loving words and loving actions towards one another. I pray that that you would lead us to turn and to see and to look and gaze upon your face, on your beauty. And as we turn from these lesser joys to the greatest joy, you, Lord, that we would be full of joy and love and grace and mercy for one another. Lead us, King Jesus. Work in us, transform us, change us. In your name we pray, amen.